This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. We're coming up to the end of this series. Uh, we've got today and next Sunday will be it for the Book of Esther. It's been our summer, our summer series. Um, and uh, so we've got two more weeks in it, and then we're going to do a couple of individual standalone kind of messages. And then this fall, uh, we're going to, starting this fall, and it'll go for a while, we're going to teach through the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, which is the craziest church in the New Testament. I mean, it is completely out of control, so it will be very interesting. Uh, I don't know what I'm calling the series, but I've, I've even thought about crazy church, because it is just crazy. And uh, so we're going to see how the gospel uh, brings sanity into chaos, and how the gospel builds community among people that would n- by no other means experience community. So that's what we'll be doing for some time, but we'll start that in September, later in September. Uh, so today we're in chapter 8. What has happened prior in the previous chapter, I probably can't tell everything that happened in seven chapters, but what happened in the previous chapter is that Queen Esther uh, went to the king. So the, the king's name is Ahasuerus. He is the king of the Persian Empire, which is the largest empire in the world world at this time, which is in the 480s B.C., and uh, it, he reigns basically from uh, India to Ethiopia, uh, com, com, uh, compiling a very large uh, portion of the world, and uh, he's married to a queen who is Jewish, and he doesn't know it. She reveals that to him last chapter uh, because there was an edict made to kill all the Jewish people in the Persian Empire, and to, uh, to save her people, she appeals to him that that edict not be carried out and confesses that she is, in fact, Jewish herself. So it's this big da-da moment where, of revelation, and he doesn't respond negatively or kill her or anything like that. Matter of fact, he kills the guy, Haman, who made the edict. So in this chapter, we're going to see her take the next step because just because she is safe and just because the guy who made the edict to kill all the Jews is gone, the edict still stands. And so in this chapter, we're going to see how God placed Esther in this position to speak up for uh, God's people and to preserve them. So uh, let's read chapter 8 together. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, And if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? 
Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and to the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods." On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. And the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text of Scripture. And though it was written so many, many years ago, and though it records Uh, a circumstance and a culture far different than ours. We pray that you would bridge the gap of history, that you would bridge the gap of culture, that you would bridge the gap of foreign expressions, and that you would speak to us here today in 2016. We pray that you would show us what you are doing in this passage. We pray that you would show us as well the glory of the gospel, which we see on every page of Scripture. And we pray that you would encourage us to have faith in you. We pray that you would lift our hearts and our eyes. Lord, there are people in this room who are struggling today, bearing great burdens. And I pray that somehow this passage uh, from your God-breathed word would speak to every heart and would bring light and joy to those who are burdened and fearful today. May it be so for your glory. Give us ears to hear and hearts to respond in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen. Well, here's what happens. After Haman's death, which was the last thing that happened in the previous chapter. Now, he, if you're new here, he was the guy that had made the edict to kill the Jews. So he's killed uh, instantly on gallows that he built for an, another person, Mordecai, to die on. After he dies, what happens in this chapter is a series of reversals. So if you've been around for the previous chapters, this will make sense. If not, You'll just have to trust me on it, and you can go back and read later uh, on your own. But I'm going to show some of the reversals, because this chapter is a chapter that records reversals. It's a chapter that records comebacks, we could even say. It's a chapter that records what God does to change and make things far better for those who were suffering greatly. It takes those who were on the bottom and puts them on the top. That's what's happening, great reversals in this chapter. Here's the first reversal, verse 1. King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. So she reveals that she's Jewish, the enemy is killed, and then his entire estate is given to her. This is a a tremendous reversal. The one who opposed them loses all that he has and gives it uh, to the one who was ultimately opposed. That was common in this day for someone who was a traitor to the state, a traitor to the crown, that after execution, their estate was then given to the crown. So whatever Haman had was given over to the king, and the king gave it to the queen. That is a tremendous reversal. And then the next thing she does is she explains who Mordecai is. Mordecai is her cousin, but he has raised her. Her parents uh, died, and so he's been like a father to her. So she tells the king, Mordecai, who previously saved your life, by the way, he raised me. The guy that saved your life, he's Jewish as well. He raised me and wanted you to know about that. So the king, verse 2, takes off his signet ring, which is a power of authority. It's like, uh, it's like power of attorney. It's the ability to sign something uh, into law uh, on behalf of the king. And so you seal it with a ring that's like a, uh, like a, a royal signature um, that, that uh, uh, it puts an emblem on a document demonstrating that it has royal authority. So if you have the signet ring of the king and the permission to use it, man, the world is yours. You, you can do whatever the king would allow. And so he gives that to Mordecai. Now here's the amazing reversal. Haman had the ring. Haman said, I'm going to kill the Jews. Haman got mad at Mordecai. Haman built a large gallows to kill Mordecai on it. Haman is killed on it, and then the ring goes to Mordecai. The the guy that he opposed now has authority after his death. It's a tremendous reversal. It's It's a reversal that a few chapters ago none of us could have seen coming. If you didn't know the story, you would have never imagined that that would be what would happen. But it is. So that begins this series of reversals. Then what happens in verse 3 is that Esther comes to make her plea to the king. And this time, she doesn't do a bunch of banquets, and she doesn't do about, well, I'm going to ask you, but I'm not going to ask. She doesn't do any of that. She falls at his feet and starts weeping, starts weeping before the king. Verse 5, she then rises before him and says, listen to how she asks. She still asks her request in a very thoughtful, planned, wise manner. She says, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the Things seems right before the king, and if I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written. Wow, that sounds like a lot, doesn't it? She basically says four things. First of all, she makes an appeal to the king's interest. She says, if I please the king, if it please the king, rather, so if the king's pleased by what I'm about to say, and then the fourth thing she says is, um, 
uh, if I'm pleasing in his eyes. So she's making this plea to the king, hey, if you like this, if, if you find this beneficial, please grant it. And then she says, um, if I have found favor in his sight, and if I am uh, pleasing in his eyes, I'm sorry, uh, if I'm pleasing in his eyes. So she said, if, if you have favor on me. So if you like this, if it pleases you, and if you really have favor on me, because this does please me, so if you love me, if you love me, uh, would you do this? So she doesn't appeal to righteousness, justice. These are foreign concepts in a monarchy like this. It's what the king wants to do, he does. So she appeals to that. Sometimes in the empire, uh, you don't compromise values, but you do have to play along with the rules of the empire to get things done. And that's what she's doing. She is appealing to him and actually appealing to what will benefit him and what will benefit her. So then she says, uh, would you please revoke this edict made by Haman to kill all the Jews. Verse 6, for how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming on my people? And how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Now this is so different. If you've been tracing with us through Esther, this is so different. At the beginning, she doesn't even tell her faith. Mordecai uh, tells her, don't tell anyone that you're Jewish. So it's a hidden faith, and she, she listens to him. Even though what he's saying is not wise, it's not good counsel, she ultimately still obeys it, and she doesn't tell. She doesn't answer anything. And then when he says, stand up for your people, if you'll remember, she's like, oh, I don't know if I can do that. So she's hesitant, but look at what she's doing now. Now she's saying, I can't even imagine what it would be like to see my people die. I, this is a calamity that I cannot bear, she says. I can't bear the destruct to see the destruction of my kindred. Now she's not hiding her faith, but she's so intertwined with the people of God that she's weeping to the king, and she's interceding for the people. And she's identifying with the despised and the marginalized and those who are under a death sentence. And she's saying, King, I can't even imagine what it would be like if they die. I'm pleading with you to overturn the edict. So now she's gone from distancing herself from her people to emotionally appealing in a concern for her people. She is acting on behalf of others. This is excellent leadership. This is actually the very nature of leadership is what she's doing here. It's to, it's to bear the interests of others and to protect those that need protection and to act for the benefit of others. That's what she's doing. So what does the king say to her? What is his response? Sure, I'll do that. Well, not really. He says in verse 7, Behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman, and they've hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. So, look, I've given you a lot of money, I gave you an estate, I killed the enemy, uh, you know, what more can I do here? So I've already done these tremendous things, he in essence says, but I will do this, he says, you may write as you please with regard to the Jews. Verse 9, seal it with the signet ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Here's what he's saying, there's already a standing edict that's going to happen in 11 months or so that all the Jews are going to be killed. I can't overturn that. They lived in a culture where by law, I can't overturn an edict. Once it's in writing, it's in writing. But here's what I'll do. I'll give you my signet ring. You write whatever law you want, and I'm, I'm supportive of that. Now, that's what he did the first time, and that's where there's problems. So this guy is like a major, he didn't learn his lesson in the Haman situation. He's a major over-delegator. He just gives out the signet ring to who he trusts and says, 
just write a law and fix it, you know? So he's basically telling them, you can do whatever you want, but I can't overturn an edict. You, you write what you want. So what does Mordecai do? If what we read sounded a little strange, what he's doing is he's writing the exact reverse edict. So he took the edict that's going to kill all the Jews. He uses the same language and writes a reverse edict. But what he says is that uh, the edict is, verse 11, that all the Jews who are in any city can gather to defend their lives. So the edict was, it was insane. It was, there was no army involved. It was that all of the people in the Persian Empire were supposed to start killing Jews on this one day. So you kill them, it said, you kill their children, you kill their wives, and you take plunder from all their stuff. That was the law. So everybody was under command to just extinguish any Jews in their neighborhood, wherever they were. You just go kill them on this day. And so what he does is he writes the exact opposite, since that can't be overturned, and said the Jews can gather so they don't have to be by themselves, picked off as targets. They can gather together and they can do the exact same thing in return. They can, he says, defend their lives is the language. So it is different. Though the language is the same, uh, it is different than Haman's. Haman's decree was aggressive. This decree is defensive, justifying their defense of their lives. And what can they do? Well, anyone that comes against them to attack them, including their women and children, they, which sounds, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? Why would they allow the brutalization, even the killing of women and children, because it's the exact opposite of the other edict. It certainly, uh, it certainly would put fear in those who would attack them. They would say, hey, we have the right to attack them, but they have the right to do the same thing in return. So it's just a parallel edict. That's what's being written. Uh, they also have the right to plunder. Now, we're going to see in chapter 9, they don't plunder, but they have that right. So, uh, that, that, that's what they do. He, he, he writes an edict that neutralizes the first edict. Then they send out on swift horses in the king's service. They deliver this everywhere, and it's read. Next chapter, we'll see what happens. Then in verse 15, this is one of the greatest comebacks probably in the Bible. Um, verse 15, Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. They are a minority people in, 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 a, in a pagan nation. Uh, they are uh, a rejected people. They have a death sentence. But Mordecai has been raised up to the king's right-hand man and is given a royal robe and a royal crown. Now, if you remember when the first edict came out that all the Jews are going to be killed, Mordecai puts on sackcloth and ashes and cries out in the city square. Now, at the second edict, he has on royal robes. This is a sackcloth to royal robes story, you know. Uh, it, this is from the lowest to the highest. After the first edict, it said that the entire city of Susa was in confusion, because they didn't all hate the Jews. Why, why are we supposed to do this? Why are we supposed to kill innocent people? Why is the king telling us to do this? And now that the Jews can defend themselves and this sort of thing, that that's a royal command that they defend themselves, now the city shouts and rejoices. So this entire city is shouting and rejoicing on behalf of the Jews. It is an incredible reversal, a great reversal. After the first edict, 
It says in chapter 4 that the Jews were mourning, fasting, weeping, and wailing. After the law is you're all going to die, they respond in those four ways. Mourning, fasting, weeping, and wailing. There's four ways. Again, it's so parallel. There's a total reversal. There's four ways that they respond after the second edict as well, and it's in verse 17. There was gladness and joy, a feast and a holiday. Uh, I'm sorry, it's verse 16. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. Four opposites. There is light, gladness, joy, and honor. God turns everything around, and it's a parallel turnaround. These details are given for us so that we will see the nature of the turnaround. And it's not like, well, things were bad, and then they kind of got a little better. It's like things were death, mourning, sackcloth, and now things are royal robes, power, light, joy, celebration. It is this great reversal. And all of these reversals in the book of Esther, they show God's hand. God is never mentioned in the book. He is never mentioned by name in the book, yet his invisible hand is at work throughout the book, arranging all of these various coincidences, uh, supposed coincidences. He's arranging all of these things, and here he is arranging all of these reversals. And it really shows that each of these micro-reversals, these micro-reversals point to a macro-reversal in the Bible. Each story in the Bible connects to a grand story. There's really one story in all the Bible, one grand story in all the Bible, and all the smaller stories connect to that grand story. And these little reversals connect to the great reversal that is the story of the Bible. The Bible teaches us that God created man, male and female, Adam and Eve, in a garden, and it was perfect. They lived in a perfect environment with no sin, no suffering, no death. It was absolutely perfect. They lived in relationship with God, uh, with uh, open and free communion with the God who created them. But then they sinned, they rejected God's authority, and they fell into sin. And since, since their sin, every one of us born after them has been born with a sin nature. So while they had this alive relationship with the garden, in the garden with God, once sin, once rebellion, once disobedience came there, then we're all born with that sin nature, with a selfishness about us. We're all born, the Bible says, spiritually dead. They were alive to God. We're born spiritually dead to God. That is, we're not listening to God, loving God by nature, wanting to serve God, want to live our lives for the glory of God, want to give everything that we are and all that we have to spend and use for Him. We don't live that way by nature. No one by nature lives that way. So there is spiritual death over mankind. Well, God sends Jesus, his son, who is the God-man, and Jesus comes, and he is not selfish. He's perfect. He's perfectly loving. He, He obeys his Father. He lives this perfect life And then he dies, though he's innocent, he dies as a guilty man on a cross. He dies on a cross, he is buried, and he is raised on the third day. And it is on the cross that God places our sins upon Jesus. He he, he curses his own son, in essence. It It was a curse to die upon a cross. And so he dies in our place. He takes our sins upon himself 
Talk about reversal. We fell, but he pays for our sins. He takes our sins upon himself. He pays for them as a sacrifice. And then he is raised to new life. A complete reversal. Life coming to bring death to those who had only known spiritual death. So now anyone who will trust in Jesus, anyone who will recognize their own sin before a holy God, anyone who will recognize their own selfishness, their own pride, their own greed, their own lust, their own self-focus, any of us who will, anyone who will recognize that and see, I need forgiveness for my sins, and will turn from those sins, and will turn to Jesus Christ and believe in him as our substitute, we receive new life. We receive the great reversal. We receive the eternal comeback, if you will. Jesus comes and reverses the course of history. Jesus comes to make all things new. And then one day, the scripture says, he will return and he will restore. He will judge everyone. Those who have rejected Jesus, who have not believed in him, are are, uh, condemned. Those who believe in him receive eternal life in God's presence. And he will bring the great reversal. Great reversal. It is amazing, amazing good news. So this story with all of its little reversals tie into this great story of reversal. This one grand reversal. This one great comeback. And I'm wondering if, as you are here today, have you experienced that reversal in your life? There's no more important question. Do do you know Christ? Do you know this new life? This great reversal. It's an amazing reversal uh, in, in this story. It's an amazing reversal. But it's only a faint echo of the glorious reversal of Christ rising from the dead to make all things new, of Christ coming into our lives and giving us spiritual life to open our blind eyes, to give life to our dead hearts, to give us a heart for him, to change us. These little reversals, as amazing as they are historically, they pale to the great reversal that God brings. Have you experienced this radical comeback? Have you experienced the spiritual comeback from death to life, the radical reversal from not following God to following him, from being distant from him to loving him. Have you experienced it? I'm not asking, do you go to church? What you did today, that's obvious. Not asking, do you go to church? Not asking if you're moral. Not asking if you're a good person. I'm not asking if you're religious. I'm not asking if you ever read your Bible or pray or or give charitably to those in need. I'm asking, have you gone from death to life? Jesus doesn't come to make bad people good, and once we become Christians, the goal of the life is not to make good people a little better. Jesus comes to make dead people alive. Jesus comes to make people whose heart is not for him drawn to him. Jesus comes to make people who worship themselves into worshipers of their Father. Jesus comes to take orphans, spiritual orphans, alone and separated from God, and adopt them. By, he comes so that the Father would adopt them and bring them into his family. From orphan to family, do you know that? From dead to alive. From a conscience that is filled with sin to a conscience that is cleared and clean before God. Have you experienced that? If not, nothing compares. Nothing we're going to say in this whole book of Esther is going to compare to that reversal. 
And if you've never done that, you can do that today. You can come to the Lord and say, I need a Savior. I need forgiveness for my sins, and I'm turning from my sins. I do not want to. I'm leaving them behind, and I'm running into your arms, Lord, and I believe that you are the way to the Father. You are the one to give me new life. It's not my good works. It's what you've done for me. We not only turn from our sins, our bad works, but we turn from our good works. If we're trusting our good works, we must turn from that and say, I do not trust in my obedience. I do not trust in being good. I do not trust in being moral. I do not trust in my parents were Christians. I trust in Jesus alone. And then we experience the greatest reversal. Well, let me make two. That's a big application. That's the eternal application to anyone here who does not know the Lord. But let me make two applications to everyone. And the first one is this. God can reverse any situation. That is a significant truth here, that God who rules over all can reverse any situation. I mean, can you think about this for just a minute? Earlier in the book, Esther will not even admit that she's Jewish, presumably for fear that she'll be done harm. It is under wraps. Now, Persians are saying, I want to be a Jew because I'm afraid not to be a Jew, because the Jews are being protected, so I want to be one. That is that's an indescribable reversal in the, in the culture. Now, now, this text does not teach that God will reverse all situations in this life. I need to repeat that. Somebody asked me after the service, a newer person, uh, last week, what I thought I really appreciated this question. What I thought about suffering, does God alleviate, in essence, all suffering? Now, as part of believing in Jesus, the promise that your suffering now will be alleviated? No, it will eternally, but not in this life. I'm not reading this and saying, just what happened to Esther, I can guarantee that for you. If you have enough faith, you'll go from sackcloth to royal robes. If you have enough faith, you'll go from fasting to feasting. You know, I I don't have some cute saying about promising that. The the reality is you may suffer more as a believer. That would be the experience of many throughout history. But it's not a suffering that is alone. It is a suffering with God strengthening us, God with us, God helping us, God never wasting a suffering, but taking sufferings and making us more like his son as we respond to him. It's suffering that is redemptive. It's suffering that is hopeful, and it is suffering that will come to an end one day when he returns. So I am not saying that the purpose of this text is every situation in your life will be reversed. But I am saying God does that. God took an irrevocable law by a pagan king that had no interest in the Jewish people, and he turns their situation around. Esther goes from undercover believer to open believer, saving her people, humanly speaking, God ultimately speaking. Mordecai has this tremendous shift in his position. Jewish people are panicked in fear, and now they're welcoming people into their new members' meeting to join them, uh, to be saved from what is coming. 
Now, this account is part of redemptive history. What God is doing here is he's saving the Jews. Why? Well, he made a covenant with them, and he's also saving them because his, sa- his son, Jesus, is going to come from them. So something is happening redemptively here that is unique, to be sure. I want to be clear on that. What's happening here is redemptive history, and there's something unique happening here, but God has not changed. If we read this and it's only historical and it teaches us nothing about the character of God, then it doesn't have near the meaning for us that I believe God intends it to have, which is look at the character of God in this story. And while we cannot prescribe he acts exactly the same in all stories, we can, pers- we can know he is the same in all stories and he is the God of reversals. That's the story of the Bible. If He is the Lord of the comeback, we should say. We all love a comeback story. We all love a comeback in a sporting event, if our team's coming back, that is. That's, sort of, that's part of the glamour of the Olympics. You know, the Olympics would not be nearly as exciting if they just said, this guy was on top of the world his whole life, and then he won a gold medal, and he's still on top of the world. No, they will, the best stories are where they show you that someone overcame tremendous odds shouldn't even be here. It's amazing they're even here. And then they're wearing a gold medal around their neck and their nation's anthem is being played. We love that because I believe that's hardwired into us, created in the image of God, because that mirrors the storyline of the Bible. From death to life, from eternal death and judgment to eternal life, from loss to victory, from separate to brought home, from orphan to child of God. We love that because that's who our God is and because that is the story of the Scripture. And so I believe we should approach the Lord expecting reversals according to His will. So are you today at a place where you need a reversal, where you need a turnaround, where you need a comeback? Maybe your heart is dry and distant from God. I mean, you're here today, and during the singing, you can remember a time when that really meant something to you. There was a time in your life where the presence of God was real to you, where he was near, where you were learning, where you were hungry for him, where you would say, I'm spiritually alive. But that's not the way it is today. That's not how you've experienced this worship gathering over all. That, that seems like a distant memory in your life. You used to know the conviction of the Holy Spirit correcting you with love. You used to know the encouragement of the Bible. You used to desire to read the Bible. You used to desire to pray. You used to desire to be around God's people in fellowship with the church. You used to love that, but that's like a long time ago. And you need a reversal. And that reversal starts by seeing, first of all, that you're a long way off, by really honestly dealing with where you are, not making excuses, not blaming someone else, not saying the people at the previous church, there may be people who have tremendous sin and responsibility who've sinned against you. They will answer to the Lord for that. But it's not just making excuses and blaming someone else. It's saying, Lord, I have turned. I have drifted. I have gone a long way away, and I want to come home. I'm praying today for a reversal in my soul. I'm praying for a spiritual return, a restoration, 
A comeback is the language that we often use. Maybe that's called revival, by the way, and the Lord loves to answer that prayer. <clears throat> he does it for his people throughout the scripture. Lord, turn my heart around. That's a prayer the Lord will answer. He will honor that. <clears throat> I can't prescribe the timing or the method, but I can tell you the Lord welcomes anyone who returns to him with open arms. And I felt as I was preparing this week that there might be some people like that here. This may be, you may be new to coming to church. You may have been sitting in this building every week we've met here, but no one knows that's the condition of your heart. That's for you too. I'm not just speaking to some guest here today. I'm speaking to someone who's been in the church for years where you've just drifted. The Lord, come to the Lord and repent and ask for a return to nearness with him. Maybe that's true of something else in your life. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your marriage today. And you have just given up, or you're, you're on the border of giving up hope. Or maybe you have. Maybe you say, man, we are hanging by a thread. Other people don't know this, but we are hanging by a thread in our marriage. And, and you cannot even see a way back. You can't even see how it could work out. It, it, it is, it is, you are in trouble. Or maybe it's not on the last leg, but you're heading that direction and you're just saying, man, I'm living with a roommate. There's no joy, there's no intimacy, there's no companionship, and you're just kind of going through the motions. You might not be about to break it off, but you're going through the motions. God is a God that restores God restores. He restores people who are in sackcloth and ashes to royal regalia. And more than that, he restores dead people to spiritual life. And if he can raise his son from the grave to defeat the power of sin and the power of death, he can work in your marriage. It may not be easy. It may not be fast. In fact, it may be painful and long, but it will be worth it. I was at a leadership seminar this week a bit, and one of the speakers made a comment that I wrote down that just struck me. He said, everything worthwhile is uphill. And the problem is that we have downhill habits. What he said is so true. Everything worthwhile in the kingdom of God it's uphill. That there is this inertia, there is this force. The Bible calls it flesh or our sin nature that is always warring against us. We can't, we're going to pray for people here in just a minute. And sometimes the Lord intervenes miraculously through prayer. That does happen. And I always pray with faith that that will happen. But his normal means is not a prayer and wow, things changed. His normal means is it is uphill. But isn't it true that everything in life, boy, I could tell an Olympic story here now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to resist every, every pass. I've made it all summer without giving a Pokemon Go illustration, and I'm going to make it to the end of summer without doing that. And I was going to make it all summer without an Olympics illustration, and I'm not going to give a specific one. But, you know, th th isn't that the truth? Everything worthwhile has resistance pressing against us. And that's true in your marriage. Maybe the first step you need to take is, is not some three-step plan. The first step you need to take is acknowledging, I'm in trouble, but I serve the God 
of the reversal, the God of the comeback, the father who restores, the father who welcomes the prodigal marriage back home. Maybe that's the first step. That's not the last step. There's work to be done. You may need to read and study together. You may need to walk through some communication. You may need to walk through some reconciliation. You may need to get some help, some count. You probably will to get some help, to get some counsel, counseling even. But God is the God of the comeback. Maybe it's not your marriage or your spiritual life. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's depression. Maybe it's hopelessness. Maybe it's you're in the midst of grief and you can't imagine what it feels like to wake up and it feels normal. You serve the God of restoration. The empty tomb proves it. Maybe you've been betrayed. Maybe you find it difficult to trust. Let's pray. Let's ask God to give us a bigger vision of him than we have of our circumstances. He is bigger than your circumstances. That's one thing the book of Esther proves, is that it was bleak. Everybody's going to die. Most of us don't have anything this bleak in our lives. The government's killing us. That's bleak. But God brought a reversal for his glory. God can reverse any situation. And here's the final point. First one, God can reverse any situation. Grasp onto him today in faith and plan a next step. The next step's probably talking to someone who can give you help. A small group leader, a trusted friend, your spouse, a mature Christian, a pastor, somebody that you can talk to. Take a step. Take a step with what's my next step going to be to make a plan to see God bring this about in my life. God can reverse any situation, number two, because God is in control of every situation. God is in control of every situation. So if I were to say the whole point I'm making this morning from this chapter, it's this. God can reverse any situation because God is in control of every situation. This is a word for us in these days in our country. I opened up the book of Esther saying one of the main reasons I wanted to teach this, and I wanted to teach it now by grace, by God's grace to save us some grief in September, October, and as we approach a, a, an election in November, to, to help us think through the condition of our nation, but more importantly, to think through God's rule and God's reign, because I see a lot of fear uh, bordering on panic and despair uh, among many evangelicals. Here's a quote that's been helpful to me from a theologian named G.C. Burkauer from the book of, and think about the book of Esther with this. He said this, in no phase of the world's history is the rule of God in danger. In the book of Esther, as bleak as it looked, all the Jews are going to be wiped out. How's God going to fulfill his purposes if they're all dead? In no phase of the world's history is the rule of God in danger. I don't care what CNN says. I don't care what Fox says. I don't care what Christian pundits say. God's rule is not in danger. And that's one of the reasons I've wanted to study and think about this in this season. Certainly, some evangelicals have found a candidate for president that they trust and that they support with a clear conscience and a full heart. Some evangelicals have found a candidate that they personally support with a clear conscience and a full heart. Many have not. 
and those who have not often feel like it is over. Everything is so uncertain. And even if you have found a candidate you're happy with, could you please at least acknowledge these are not our best days politically as a country? And and that sounds like I'm mocking the candidates. I'm really not. It's because we're a divided nation. And things are uncertain. I mean, we look out ahead. I don't minimize any of this. I don't say, God's in control. Who cares? That's not what I'm saying. Situation's serious. I mean, we look out, and our future peace is uncertain, to be sure. The future of religious liberty is uncertain in this country. That's the reality. The future safety from terrorism is uncertain. The future of race relations in our country, another event last night I read about, woke up and read about this morning, the future of race relations in this country is uncertain. Gaining future protection for the unborn in this country is uncertain. The future of the economy is uncertain. The future of military engagement, the possibility of military engagement, that is uncertain. The future of the Supreme Court is uncertain. I'm just stating the obvious. Vote for me. Okay, I'm just stating the obvious. Everything is uncertain. But who rules over all is certain. It is absolutely certain. I don't care who is inaugurated in January, whether it's one of the two primary candidates, some other candidate, maybe one of you, I don't know. Whoever is inaugurated in January, all of us can say, well, I I wish it was, I wish it wasn't, whatever, but I know who rules, I know whose invisible hand is at work. And I know God will preserve his people. I know God will bring a witness through his people. And I know that for us as a church in America and for us as individual Christians, that God is always at work conforming us to the image of his son. And so one reason I wanted to study this book is because it just makes it so clear. God brings great turnarounds, but even when he does not, he rules. Proverbs 21.1 says this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. This is a great verse to remember at all these these times. Because this is, let me just say this. Think about King Ahasuerus. And then think about King Ahasuerus, if you walked up to him without being invited, they cut your head off. That's the kind of power he had. His wife doesn't come see him. She's no longer queen. She's out. I mean, you could not. This guy had power. He could just kill people, just make edicts, doing whatever he wants to do. This statement's way more powerful than the president's heart is a stream. That's powerful, but we live in a democracy where the president can't kill whoever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. We don't live in a monarchy or a dictatorship. They did, and so the king's heart is powerful. There's nothing on earth more powerful, humanly speaking, than the decision of a king. But the Proverbs say, but God is more powerful. The king's heart is just like a water course, like a stream. Oh, let's go this way. Oh, we'll turn it this way. The Lord can turn it however he wants. God can reverse any situation because God is in control of every situation. And he doesn't change some situations. He doesn't alleviate some suffering in this life. He allow- and we can't explain that. I don't get that. I don't know why that is. But we do know he is good and he rules. This proverb is a word for our day 
nationally. And it is an argument, really, it is an argument from the greater to the lesser. The most powerful human force in biblical times was the king's decision. And if the Lord can turn that, then can he not turn all the other puny people in our lives whose decisions affect us? If he can turn the king's heart, could he maybe do something about your boss's heart? If he could turn the king's heart, could he not affect your spouse's heart? If he could turn the king's heart, could he not get you that job interview and then that job? Could he not provide for you financially? Could he not heal your body or, it, or comfort you in your suffering? Could he not do these lesser things if he can do this greater thing? If he can raise his son from the dead, if he gave his son, Pete quoted that earlier, if he gave his son for us, will he not along with him freely, graciously give us all things? You look at the empty tomb and you say, he rules and he reigns. We can put our head on the pillow at night. It does not mean we're not crying some nights to sleep. It does not mean we don't go to sleep with burdens. It does not mean that we don't go to sleep with uncertainty. But it does mean that we go to sleep confident that we serve the Lord of the comeback who can restore any situation because he controls every situation. Let's put our trust in him. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.com dot o-r-g